segue from recognizing and honoring someone to then talking about God's justice poured out on his enemies. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 18 and 19 as we continue in in our series. As we consider this morning the fall of Babylon and the joy of heaven. We're going to read, we're going to consider both of these chapters, well, most of chapter 19, but both of these chapters to, together, but we're just going to read the first few verses of Revelation 18 and the first few verses of Revelation 19 to kind of get the feel and the, set the context of what we're considering. So let's read Revelation 18, 1 through 8, and then I'll skip down to Revelation 19, 1 through 5. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Then to Revelation 19, which we read along with Ruth and the worship team. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it gives us a perspective for history. It gives us perspective to to know you and to trust you and to follow you and to cling to you. And I pray that as we come to this passage together, that you would bring great encouragement to our hearts, to our faith, and we would hold on to you as you hold on to us. God, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Be careful what you affix your heart to. Be careful what your heart 
is Velcroed to so significantly, so tightly. Chapters 18 and 19 reveal ultimately the outcome of history. If you affix your heart to this world, asking its pleasures, its possessions, its power to be your ultimate joy, then devastating ruin is your future. And yet if you affix your heart to God, the kind of joy that soars to the highest part of heaven will be yours. Be careful what you affix your heart to. Chapters 18 and 19 unfold for us in a very vivid picture, a very vivid way, the outcome of God's justice. God brings to bear His justice on this world. And the culminating moment of justice, the all of what history is leading to, this culminating moment that we get a glimpse of here in our passage, does a number of things for our hearts. It does a number of things for us so that we don't affix our heart on the wrong thing. This culminating justice serves to warn our hearts. Warn our hearts to not affix itself, to affix them on this world. To encourage our hearts to know that affixing our hearts to God, what it leads to. And as such, that warning and that encouragement serve as a guide for our hearts to live our lives now, navigating now. And we will consider these three together. First, to warn our hearts. We find here in chapter 18 a very striking and stern warning, if you will, to not affix our hearts to this world because justice is certain and complete. It is certain and it is complete. We've read in 18, Babylon falls, bringing devastating sorrow to all whose hearts are fixed to it. Now, we've mentioned Babylon a number of times, and last week I lamented that I didn't have a slide for you and the definition for Babylon, so I have it this week. I'm very proud of this moment. Um, but Babylon, just as a reminder, is a word metaphor, a picture of the man-made, man-centered system of the world that is an antagonistic alternative to following God. So Babylon is referring to the entire system of the world set up, centered on man. Man is the, is the God, if you will. Man is most worshipped, and it is set up as an antagonistic alternative to following God. It offers to us pleasures and possessions and power and comfort, and it says this is better than following God. This Babylon comes at us either through that form of idolatry, the buffet of idolatry, all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the power, all the comfort the world wants to offer you. It's a buffet. It says, come worship this. It's better than God. Or it comes at you when you don't go to the buffet. It comes at you with a boot of persecution. And so it it falls, and this serves to warn our hearts over the emptiness of idolatry and to encourage our hearts in the face of the fear of persecution. Because this warning is, is good for us because Babylon faces a certain and complete judgment. It is certain and it is 
complete, total, whole. It, there will be nothing left. Look again at verse 2 of chapter 18. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. Fallen. Again, John is getting a, a, a glimpse of what will come one great and culminating day. And, and it's spoken of with such certainty as if it has already happened. It's spoken of as if it's already been judged and justice has already been poured out. That's how certain God's justice is. And that's the reason why. Why can it be spoken of as if already happening? Because God. Because God is the reason. Looking at verses 8 and then verse 20 of chapter 18, we find that God is at the very heart and the very reason for this. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Why? For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then in verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Why? For God has given judgment for you against her. Babylon faces a certain judgment because God. And that judgment, that certain judgment is also complete, total, whole. Let's read verses 21 through 24 of Revelation 18, considering the complete judgment that the man-centered, man-made, man-centered world will receive. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great be thrown down with violence, and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and, all, and of all who have been slain on earth. So great, so complete will be God's judgment and justice against his enemies and against Babylon. And it's really ultimately fulfilling words that God promised long, long before this day with John. It goes all the way back into the Old Testament in Jeremiah chapter 51. Jeremiah was dealing with an actual Babylon, a literal Babylon, but also speaking words of the spiritual dynamic that would be culminating in John's day and this revelation that he was receiving. In Jeremiah 51, it says, when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, which is great river, and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. There was an actual Babylon who was an actual threat to God's actual people, crushing them and exiling them, and that actual Babylon received actual justice, getting demolished itself. And that, too, was prefiguring 
a great justice that would be poured out when Christ returns. And so great is that it's attached with this visual, a millstone, a giant stone that required large animals to move. And this giant stone was picked up and hurled into the sea. So think of the strength and the might of what God is bringing to bear that is picked up and hurled, not nudged into the water or plopped down, but hurled into the sea, emphasizing the the scope of God's justice. And so complete is God's justice over this wicked world that it is thorough, irrecoverable, it can't be stopped, and it is so irreparable, it cannot be fixed. And no more will there be so many normal things of life. There were six no mores in that passage, 21 through 24, and they speak to the devastating certainty and complete justice of God. Babylon will be found no more. Music will be found no more. Craftsmen will be found no more. Manufacturing will be found no more. Light will be found no more. The joys of life will be found no more. The everyday normal joys and experiences and functions of this world will be no more. That is how certain and complete God's justice will be. And so it serves as a warning to fix your heart to the right ship. To fix your heart to the right thing. Notice with me the impact of fallen Babylon has on those whose hearts were affixed to it. We're going to find three groups of people who are utterly and completely and totally devastated. First is the people of power in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 18. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour judgment has come. People of power exploited their positions of power for the pursuit of their pleasures. That so much of our world is dominated by those who use their position of power to pursue their pursuits of pleasure. They, too, will sink under the sorrow of losing their power. The next are the people of of possessions or production and wealth. We see them laid out in verses 11 through 17. Let's read verses 15 and 17 to see their reaction. The merchant of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. They exploited their positions of production to accumulate great wealth and comfort in this world, and they sink under the sorrow of their system of wealth getting crushed. And then thirdly, the people of trade and wealth. We see in verses 17 through 20. Let's consider the rest of 17 in verse 18. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? They exploited their positions of trade and transport 
transporting of the possessions of this world to accumulate great wealth, and it's all gone. They mourn the death of this world and their impending deaths, empty and broken. It serves for you and me right now as a warning to not affix our heart on the things of this world. They will not last. Live for this world and you will experience the soul-crushing despair of loss and judgment. This is a gift. This picture is a gift to us. It shows where a heart affixed to this world will end up. And it says, don't go this way. Don't go this way with your life. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to pursue the pleasures and possessions and power of this world. Its entire system is bent to take you further away from God. Now you might be wondering, how do we then live in this world? How do we then live experiencing the joys of pleasures and possessions and power and opportunity in this world? Well, here's a little teaser. When we're done with Revelation, we'll get into Ecclesiastes this summer And that's your answer. So you have to come back. It's like the two-minute trailer, you know, summer movies. So you have to come back this summer to get the answer to how then do we live in this world without making it ultimate. We'll consider that in Ecclesiastes. But right now, take the warning for what it is. Don't affix your heart to this world. It's under judgment and will receive justice. Only sorrow awaits for those whose hearts are affixed to the world This also, this portion of Revelation encourages our hearts. It encourages our hearts in a a way maybe is not expected. It encourages our hearts in that God's justice poured out produces joy in His people. That almost feels like that's wrong. I shouldn't feel joy. But God's justice produces joy. Because God's Justice does a number of things. One, God's justice rights the wrongs. It rights the wrongs. It deals with the wrongs. Justice is that, just. And it is right. And it is worthy to be praised when it's God who's doing it. So again, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 19. An incredible scene of great joy in heaven because of God's justice on this world. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Justice is true and just because Justice is God's. It belongs to Him. It's from Him. It's, it's true and just because that's the nature and character of God. So whatever God does is going to follow His nature and His character. So if we have a problem with justice, it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with our understanding of justice. It's a problem of our own humanity and infiniteness or finiteness compared to God's eternal, perfect, and infinite glory. Justice is true and just because it's God's. 
It's also true and just because as we see here in our passage, it's dealing with two things, wicked idolatry and horrific persecution. It's just because it deals with those things. And this true and just justice is joy-producing. We had three hallelujahs and a praise our God in, in Revelation 19. Because the smoke of fallen Babylon rises forever. Why does it produce joy? Because justice upholds God's worth, condemns God's enemies, and restores God's people. It's worth the joy. Because God is honored, His enemies are vanquished, and His people restored. It rights the wrongs by honoring those who have been wronged, God in His honor and God in His people, and punishing those who commit the wrong. Justice is a good thing. The justice of God is the best thing, and it produces joy in heaven. And this justice brings about also restoration. It helps provide the context for a restored people of God, with God, in God's place, feasting with Him with great joy. Let's look at Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. So right after the three hallelujahs and a praise our God, we get this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. There is a great wedding feast, uh, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. A great moment of, of restoration, of joy, of culminating anticipation and hope. The arc of God's purposes for redemptive history culminates in this restored moment in a feast. It's God's character and His works at play bringing about this restoration. And a wedding feast is used to convey this glorious moment. The enemies have been vanquished. The people have been restored. And they feast as if at a wedding. In the Hebrew tradition, this would have carried a lot of meaning and weight for the original people. There are four things about a wedding feast in the Hebrew tradition. One, there was this betrothal, which is basically a more significantly committed version of what we call engagement. In many ways, they were actually legally, uh, legally considered husband and wife. They were legally in contract to be husband and wife in their day and age. So it was a little bit more than an engagement. And it had a definitive period of time. And it wasn't like, you know, the seven-year engagement that sometimes our, our culture sort of perpetuates. But it was, it was purposed and it was significantly committed to. Within that significant commitment... Secondly, there was a dowry. A dowry was a, a, a price that the groom would pay the father for the bride. He wasn't buying her. He was, it was more of an honor, and it was, a, it was a, a showing of the seriousness of the commitment. 
Oftentimes, it was an agreed price or a service that the groom would commit to show honor to the Father and the seriousness of the commitment that he was making. And then there was, thirdly, an interval. It was a waiting period between betrothal and feast where the dowry was cared for and preparations were made. And then lastly, there was the feast. Typically a seven-day celebration, sometimes longer, over the marriage. As a community, as a people, gathered together, feasting with great joy, that the whole process has finally reached its end. And that picture is an incredible picture for us. God has promised and made a seriously significant commitment to the redeemed. Christ has come and paid the dowry. The church exists in the day and age in which we are preparing, we're anticipating this great and glorious feast when Christ returns and there is great celebration. We certainly live in the days of of the interval, the waiting period, the preparation period of time. We're anticipating a great feast. And God is saying here, my justice will come. There will be no more enemies, no more threats. There will just be feast. That's how justice produces joy. We long for this and anticipate it. And so as this passage warns us and encourages us, this passage of Scripture also will guide us. The certainty of justice gives guidance in how we can live now, how we can affix our hearts to God and hold on to Him. How, we, how are we to live in the days leading up to justice? Well, the last two verses that we're considering, 9 and 10, give us three things to follow. Let's read 9 and 10. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Three things that we find here to guide our hearts and how we can affix our hearts to God in a world that's calling us to fix it to, the, its, to all of its pleasures and possessions and power. The first is this. We can guide our hearts by delighting in and declaring the gospel. That we would delight in and declare the gospel. In verse 9 it said, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed. Blessed. Delighting. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's delight for our hearts to make much of the gospel together. It's a delight for us to see the the means by which we can feast with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it says, those who are invited. That means we have the opportunity right now to declare the gospel to those who are trapped in Babylon. The part of our heart being affixed to God is that we make much of Jesus together. We delight in and declare the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ. This is May, and we are in the season of, of, the, of the marriage wedding ceremonies between now and September-ish. 
And, and you may have received a wedding invitation in the mail, or maybe one or two, depending on your age and stage. I remember when we were just out of college, it felt like every weekend I was getting free food. Anyway, because um, we would just take our wedding gift and just, you know, pass it on, you know, the three toasters that you get. Anyway, so... Right now, the invitation that we get to share with others in this world comes on gospel cardstock. It's beautiful and it's glorious. Some of the invitations you get in the mail are so ridiculously expensive that you're like, what? But anyway, they're amazing. They're breathtaking. They're beautiful art. We have a breathtaking, beautiful invitation to give to people who are trapped. One of the ways that we can affix our hearts on God is to delight in and declare the gospel. Secondly, we go about trusting God. We trust Him. It's hard while you're in that waiting period. It's hard when it lo- you look around and you're like Psalm 73. Everybody else seems to be doing well. They live for the world and they're doing all right, but I'm trying to follow you and my life stinks. We let that woe is me cloud our judgment. And so one of the ways that we go about doing this is that we trust God. The angel says, these are the true words of God. The true words of God. Yes, we are waiting in the waiting period and anticipating the day of no mores and the day of feasting. But while we wait, we are to trust God. I know that life is hard and that evil is real. And that will test us and stretch our faith. But the call here is to trust while we wait, even when it seems overwhelming, even when there are many unknowns to us, why certain things happen. We need to be reminded that God is trustworthy and true. And so we fix our hearts to following him by reminding each other that God is true. The buffet will be alluring. We have to say to each other, God is true. And then thirdly, we find the simple call in that I think it's a hilarious scene where the angel's basically saying, get up, what are you doing? Worship God. The angel says to worship God, and it serves as a beautiful bookend to our passage because here we see Babylon that's saying, worship me, sinking under the justice of God. And the bookend is the call from heaven to worship him. Babylon that offers a buffet of other things to worship is in ruins. And here at the end of our passage, God and God alone is worthy of worship. And so affix your heart on God who alone is worthy. And the justice of God is a beautiful thing when we consider it in this way. It brings about the demise of God's enemies and the joy of God's people. As history unfolds and then culminates, God's people will know the relief and restoration of God's justice. And there will be a joy unlike any other that we've ever known or experienced. And so let that now guide your hearts to delight in and declare the good news of God, to trust Him and worship Him even while we wait. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for your good word. And we thank you that while at times it feels overwhelming and complicated and heavy, there is great purpose and great joy found in it. May our hearts be affixed to you by your grace through faith and our wonderful, merciful Savior. God, may we delight in and declare that good news, that true good news to those in this world, and may others come to know what it means to worship you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.